0: There are different reasons for which we pray. Sometimes we pray out of necessity, because we're in a bind and we feel that we need to do something about it. Sometimes we pray out of fear. Sometimes we pray out of gratitude and thanksgiving because we have received something. Normally, a lot of the reasons why we pray are things that are more immediate like that, things that we can feel and and notice. But the deepest reason that we have to pray and what should be motivating all of the rest is that we know and hopefully experience as well that God loves me with the limitless exclusivity of his very nature as God. All of his divinity is poured onto me. He loves me as his only child. And the more that I believe that, the more I feel the need to respond in some way. Not to earn it, not to make myself be worthy of it in that sense, but just to try and love back. Love provokes love. And that should be always and everywhere, the attitude that that characterizes our effort to speak with him, to talk to him, to pray. But What I'd like for us to consider now in this meditation is how that is very much connected with another motivation if you like if that's the right word one of the what motivates us to pray why would i pray another reason is that other people need prayer other people need the salvation that christ has come to bring in other words you and i are seeking to pray. You and I are seeking to draw closer to Jesus Christ, to have a more sincere and genuine Christian life. Not simply because that makes me feel happy, you know? Kind of a nice little lifestyle choice that I've made and it works for me and this is good for me. But other people need that love that we said has to be the foundation of all prayer, that God is my Father, which is an experience of salvation. Other people need that as well. And when we think about it, the neediness of others, and I say this not in any kind of, when we consider it's not in any kind of condescending way or judgmental way or paternalistic way, but just seeing that other people need to, they need his light and his love that can and should be for each one of us a strong motivation to draw closer to Christ. And what we've just sketched out there actually reflects Jesus' own life of prayer. Jesus' life of prayer was for him to receive all of the love that was given to him by the Father to give it back for you and me. He sanctified himself. He united himself to the Father. He became a man just like you and I, so as to unite us to that fatherly love which was his from all eternity. He receives that, that, that love in prayer, and what motivated him to preach and to travel and to lay his hands on so many different people, what motivated him to go all the way to the cross, was you, because he didn't want you to be without that possibility of experiencing salvation, that that complete immersion in God the Father's love. Now to think about this, this idea of what other people need as a motivation why you and I should strive and make an effort to be greater souls of prayer. To consider this, let's turn to the Gospel of Mark. And one of the first incidents that happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, St. Mark tells us. A very simple straightforward introduction to the scene. It's very easy to rush past it to the action that comes next. But it is striking if we stop to consider that Mark took it as an obvious thing that when Jesus went to Capernaum, he went home. And that's where people went to look for him. That's where they thought he would be, at home. Now, what Mark is referring to is not some property that Jesus owned in Capernaum and that he kind of rented it out and, you know, holidayed there or something. It was the house of Martha and Mary and Lazarus, house of his friends. But Jesus was at home there. It was his home. He was at ease there. He enjoyed being there. And just this little facet of the story should let's just stop before we get into where we want to go with the meditation and just remind ourselves how amazed we should be that god himself is happy to be human to live the life that you and i know and find familiar when jesus is in that house in capernaum he's not holding his nose you know kind of putting up with this and saying oh this is really dreadful being with all these people because they're so tedious and annoying and petty you know it'd be much better to be with the angels up in heaven you know where there's bliss and everyone is perfectly charitable and lovely and wonderful he was at home he wasn't in a foreign land he wasn't an extraterrestrial who just kind of landed in Capernaum he was at home And being at home, being in that house, eating their meals, having their conversations, listening to their grievances, hearing them talk about their cousin and what happened to Aunt Susanna and all of these sorts of things, Jesus did as perfect God and perfect man. And as he did it, he was no less God. He didn't kind of diminish his divinity doing these things but on the contrary was perfectly God and perfectly at home now this shouldn't simply cause us to be amazed at how close God comes to us what I'd like for us to just consider now is am I at ease with him in all the different moments of my day you know, today we're experiencing amazing weather, right? Sun and warmth and right, it's a wonderful thing, and everyone is enjoying it, and everyone is out in the street, everyone is taking it in, everyone can almost, it's kind of hard to not smile today, right? Weather like this. But did I enjoy it with him? Do I see being with him in prayer and and the fact that we're doing that and doing this, is, is he's a part of that. And that is an essential part of enjoying it. And what we're trying to transform here is because of our fallenness, because of our sinfulness, we tend to quarantine God. He gets sectioned off in the church, he gets sectioned off into certain moments of our week and to certain needs, and we associate him with that, whereas all the rest of our life, oh, well, that's my life, that's the things that I'm doing, somehow he just seems out of place there, you know? Kind of like inviting your grandmother to a rock and roll concert, you know? It's just, she just shouldn't be there, right? It's why, what are you doing here, Grandma? Why are you here, right? God is not out of place in any part of our life unless we make it that way, unless we reject him, unless there's certain facets of our life where we're uncomfortable that he's there for a reason. And that's what we wanna transform. To transform, obviously the things in our life, if there's anything that separates from God, obviously we wanna transform that. That's the easy thing to see. But the thing that's perhaps not so easy is that maybe you and I could do a little bit better Imagining that God is at ease with me. That he's not there to demand something. He's not there kind of awkwardly looking over my shoulder, wondering what I'm doing. But he is present in my life so that I might have life to the full. It was reported that Jesus was at home. So Mark goes on to tell us, so many gathered around the house, the home, So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door, and he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. It's an amazing scene. We know from archeology span and the digs of Capernaum that exists now, that there was very small houses. You can see the remnants of them today if you go to Israel and and visit the Holy Land. Very small house. Jesus would have been inside, maybe a central room would have had a thatched roof, maybe some earthen covering on on some boards there, of covering, very simple roof. And these four friends arrive with this man on a stretcher, is paralyzed. What I'd like for us to spend a, a good bit of our meditation considering is their determination They arrive because they've heard that this prophet was passing through. A prophet who's famous for his miraculous healings. And as soon as they hear that, they think of their friend. And they go and they get him. St. Mark doesn't say if they ask him, if he wanted to. It's kind of almost implied in my reading of the story anyway, that he wasn't too keen on it himself. But boom, he gets put on the mat, they carry him, they take him off, they go to the house, and when they arrive, there's no way in. They can't even get close. A lot of people are there, a lot of people are staring, people are wondering, what are you doing? A lot of opportunities to have come up with an excuse, you know, to have told their friend, well, sorry, he's busy. <laughs> we can't make it in. We'll have to try tomorrow, try next week. We hear he's going, you know, up to Galilee. Maybe you can try there when you go with your family. All sorts of opportunities could have arisen. But these four fellows go and they try the front door, then they go to try in the windows, the people are in the windows. And then one of them just says, we're going through the roof. And it's just, it's an extraordinary moment. It's kind of one of these subtly comic moments in the New Testament, right? Comic in the sense of, I don't know. I mean, it requires a certain amount of uh, daring, I'd say. (laughs) A certain amount of personality to say, well, the solution is we're going to tear off these people's roof. We're going to make a hole in it. Because he's getting in front of Jesus whatever it takes. And so up they go. they start pulling back the stach, the thatch, moving all the things that are there. They bring him on top of the roof, which could have been some sort of engineering feat in itself, and then they lower him down into the midst, right in front of Jesus. That's determination. And it's determination that comes from the fact that he was their friend. And they wanted him to be better. And this is what's interesting for you and for me. What about my friends? What about the members of my family, the people that I work with, the people that I say to myself and I say to others that I care about? What kind of determination do I have to bring them to Jesus Christ? And having asked that question, I want us to, to, to think first and foremost, what about you know, ourselves first in, in the first place? Wanting to grow in a life of prayer, to struggle and to actually embrace our daily cross. All of that, we should be trying to do it, not because we know we're supposed to or someone's telling us or we kind of feel guilty if we don't, but Lord, I want to grow close to you so as to bring you to the people that I care about. I want that my love for them to not just be me being nice. And let's be even more honest. I don't want my love for them to be selfish. Because if we are honest, we need to admit that then sometimes in our relationships, our love is love, but it can be shot through with selfishness. That I love them because they love me back, because they pay attention to me, because I have fun with them, because they, they flatter me with their compliments and with their attention. And all of us have a hunger for attention. All of us look around for it, and we're attentive to it, and that's just normal, Right? But we can't stay there, but we can, but let's not. We have, that's the beginning of a love, but we want it to be greater. We want it to be stronger. We want it to be richer because we do love our friends. We do love the people in our life, but we need to take it beyond that natural human sympathy and bring them the light and the truth and the warmth of God's own love, which is the greatest thing that we can give. And if I want to give that, if I want to bring that to them, I myself need it. I need to be praying. I need to be experiencing that love. I have in that desire a reason to struggle against those petty little things of selfishness and self-absorption, I have a very strong reason to make time for my friends just to see them, which you know in professional life is no small thing to achieve. You know, just to see somebody for dinner once a month, you've got to go out of your way to make that happen. It doesn't just arise. Even in a family, the effort has to be made. And that effort, that striving, is because one of the most beautiful things that God can do for us is to involve us in the work of redemption. That may sound abstract and kind of high theo- highly theological, but what it's, it's just a certain vocabulary that points to a very very real desire that all of us have, is the people that we know, the people that we care about, if we could remove any pain from their lives, we'd do it, we'd want to anyway. And the greatest source of pain is spiritual pain, being separated from God, being slashed and torn by sin. And precisely our love and our care for them, the fact that we're concerned for them, is the reason that we need to find of why, well, Lord, I want to be praying for that person. I want to be trying to overcome myself in small daily struggles for the benefit of that person. Because I want to heal and take away the source of that pain, which is sin distance from God. Again, it's very, I think it's important that we think in this terms because when we think about bringing people closer to Christ, it's not a question of correcting error. You know? But somehow it just kind of bugs us that people are out there and they have wrong ideas and we've got to do something about it and kind of get out there and fix it. You know, stop thinking wrong, you know? You have incorrect opinions about things. It's not, it's not, we're not trying to be Right? but our care and concern from other people, precisely a care and concern that should be growing because of our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He's that transform the way we look at things and say, this person needs more from me. In short, just to kind of bring this point, if I could just sum it up, Christian maturity is happening in the soul of a person who feels responsible for other people. Responsible, not in the... Understand what I mean correctly, please. Responsible, not in the sense of, you know, if I have a friend who's, you know, suffering some sort of horrible addiction, you know, it's not my fault, right? I'm not responsible in that sense, you know? And that if in, in the fact that this person is going through this ordeal is, you know, my responsibility. I have to fix it. There's only one savior and his name is Jesus Christ, not you or me. But Christian maturity is to feel responsible in the sense of what can I do to make that one savior more present in this person's life? To think in those terms. That's why I want to be cheerful with this person, to be attentive to really help them to open up and share in a one-on-one conversation with them, not in a preachy way or a holier-than-thou way at all, but in a sincere way, my own experience of faith, which involves my own weaknesses and my defects and all of the rest. But when I think about them, I, I, don't, I can't just kind of happily carry on with my day and my life as if their distance from him were nothing to me. Now, there's one way, I've I've kind of been alluding to this a little bit, but there's one way in which we shouldn't imitate these four friends. I just want to mention it, even though I, and and we shouldn't force anyone to come to God. I mean, to, to the degree that these guys did actually hijack their friend and drag him to Jesus to be healed, Well, that's not to be imitated, right? We're not to force, we're not to pressurize. But at the same time, we're not to be ashamed with our actions and our words to share the belief that gives us joy and peace. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of people who are very happy to share the things that are going on in their life. I don't know if, you know if you know someone who's a vegan, for example, tend to be very happy to share their lifestyle choices with you, which is apparently very complicated. I just discovered the other day that my, my shampoo was vegan. I didn't even know that that was a problem. Anyway, so it's all it's a complicated and they'll talk to you about it for a while. Or people who are into all sorts of other things, of sports interests or work. We shouldn't be ashamed in the right moment and in the right place To share things that are much more important as well. And doing all of that with the the realization that, you know, in the society in which we're living now, none of us, none of us is in a position to impose anything. And that's a great thing, I think. It's great because it, it frees us to be able to propose something. That's all we do. We propose. It's between them and God. And we propose because we care in a sincere way. Let's go back to to the story of Jesus' reaction to these four friends. So they make it through the roof. They, they, They lower their friend down. Everyone surely is with all of the falling debris and the thatch and the stones and everyone's getting out of the way. Jesus is looking up and he sees this poor, surely very startled paralytic man making his way to the floor. And Jesus looks at him and then he looks up and he sees the four fellows peering through the sabotaged roof. And St. Mark says, when Jesus saw their faith, the four guys peering through the hole in the roof, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Notice that it's the friend's faith that moves Jesus to forgive the paralytic. The paralytic's faith doesn't get mentioned at all. Maybe he had none. Maybe he had very little. It doesn't seem to matter. But in doing this, the gospel and Jesus himself reminds us That salvation, reconciliation with God, does not occur in an isolated way. It happens through us. Through that companionship, through that prayer, through that determination of friends who care about one another, their faith moves Jesus to forgive his sins. At the same time, we should notice, or at least consider, that maybe those four friends were a little bit disappointed when they heard what Jesus said. You know? Because they brought him there to get healed. Like, so he could walk. And Jesus is saying, you know, he forgives his sins. And they're like, well, but, you know, he's still kind of paralyzed on the floor. You know? That's not immediately what they were looking for. But the scribes who were there listening, they get the deeper point. Only God can forgive sins. Therefore, who is this man, and what is he claiming to be? Now some of the scribes were sitting there, Mark tells us in the Gospel, questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are are forgiven, or to say, stand up and take your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Jesus makes it very clear that the physical miracle, the fact that this paralytic stands up, and he begins to walk, and he feels the strength and the vitality coursing through his veins and in his muscles, and he looks around in wonder. Jesus points to that miracle, and he says, that is so that you believe in the miracle that you can't see. His sins have been forgiven. You and I experience the miracle of God forgiving us our sins, whenever we want to, whenever we decide to go to the sacrament of confession, whenever we make a sincere act of contrition, we participate in the sacrifice of the mass. Jesus forgives us of our sins. The miracle of a spiritual healing Now, when we go to confession, nothing extraordinary happens. There's no angelic chorus in the background. We don't begin to levitate, nothing glows. Um, At least none of that should be happening to you. (laughs) It's very normal. But it is a miracle. Lord, give us a stronger faith. We want to ask now in our prayer, give us a stronger faith to believe what a wondrous thing it is that you forgive us. Because as far as Jesus is concerned, any of the miracles that he performs are simply just little bitty examples that point to the most important healing of all. The healing that sometimes you and I don't think we even need. We get used to it. We get used to the deformity and the paralysis of our selfishness. We become accustomed to the leprosy of our sensuality, to that being hunched over and bent by our pride and our envy. And we think that's just the way things are. It's the normal state of affairs we cease dreaming that another life is possible, perhaps in the same way that this paralytic had just said, well, I'm paralyzed, this is the way life is, he had just accepted it. Understandably so, it's not to judge him. <laughs> what was he going to do? But in the spiritual level, Jesus has come to bring us to salvation so that we might be healed. And when we are healed, one of the signs that we're, we're getting at, that we're accepting at, is that we wanna share it with others. We wanna bring others to it as well. Again, without forcing, without pressurizing, having a lot of patience and absolute respect for the freedom and conscience of every individual person. But just like those four friends, we need that determination. That maybe if it seems that they're not interested, we wait, we pray even more. When we see that our friends and our family members do not respond to the faith, that needs to be for each one of us a motivation. I need to be a little bit better. I need to be a more cheerful witness of what it means to love Jesus Christ. I need to be a little bit more determined to to weed out as much as I can through a, a cheerful, patient struggle. The things that take away from a witness of Christian life. And if we're doing that, if we're struggling in ourselves, perhaps without our realizing it, it will make it so much easier for others to get a glimpse of the attractiveness of Christian life. Not because you and I are flawless and shiny and you know, amazingly holy people. That sort of thing isn't really attractive to anyone. But what is attractive is sincerity authenticity, a genuine struggle, even though I'm weak and I have my little quirky things, I am trying to grow in my life of prayer and to love God as best I can. So let's end our prayer turning to our mother Mary and asking her to fill us with this holy determination, a determination to transform our own life in the first place, but that that determination overflow, and that we see and feel, see our friends and feel the need to be God's instrument in their life, facilitating, whether it's with our example or with our words or with conversations, or very simply with our prayer, a prayer that they're not even aware of, we don't need to go up and tell them, hey, I'm praying for you. It can be kind of you know, bothersome, even. Let's just do it. We don't have to say it. Let's just do it. It's effective if we don't tell them. <laughs> it makes a difference, even if they're never told about it. What's important is that we do it. Mary, give us that determination. And if you give it, and if we commit ourselves to carrying it out, we will experience the joy and the strength that come with having it. Thank you, my God. For the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you communicated to me in this meditation, I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my father in Lord, my guardian angel intercede for me.